Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the neutral story with my friend, Ed Stockman. How's it going, Ed? Good. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure you're doing something very interesting, and I look forward to talking to you about it. Ed, before we get started, please introduce yourself and your company, and please spell your company's name because it is a little different. Yeah, my name's Ed Stockman. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Neutral, spelled N-E-W-T-R-U-L. It is a play on words for neutral, like the gear, or Switzerland. And we are building technology to connect shippers, brokers, and carriers, just like I said, in a very neutral-like way, where we are not a freight broker, we are not a carrier, we are not a shipper, uh, we do not have a broker's authority, we are just the middleman, think StubHub or Expedia, where we're just bringing everybody together in one place to easily and efficiently and digitally transact. I love it. So, Ed, where are you, where are you located? Right now I'm in Dallas. Uh, I go back and forth between Dallas and Chicago quite a bit. Is that where the company's based? Where's the company located? I mean, I guess that doesn't matter these days. It's all everybody's seemingly yeah. remote. <laughs> yeah, definitely a, a, a tricky question these days, but... Companies technically headquartered in, in Chicago. We have uh, our executive offices in, in Plano, Texas, and a couple satellite offices for Chicago and, and also New York City. So walk me through this in, in real basic terms. What problem do you solve and who do you solve it for? Yeah, so we, we know that the cost to find a truck for a freight broker is roughly 50% of their total margin. So if you're a, even a digital freight broker or, or one of the legacy brokers that hasn't necessarily developed their own mobile application, you're probably making $200 on a transaction. And out of that $200, typically 100 bucks of that goes to the individual and the resources that go into finding a truck. So that's uh, by all, all other standards across other industry verticals, that's an incredibly high cost of goods sold and an operational cost. So we really look to consolidate as many shipments as we possibly can into one place and give the trucking companies an easy place to go in and search and find shipments from across 75 plus different sources so they can easily transact. On the flip side of the market, you know, it takes a, a trucking company 30 minutes to find the right shipment for their truck, depending on what cycle we're in. Right now, it's much harder for them than it was throughout COVID. That's one of the interesting things about our business model and, and the industry as a whole. You know, for the last two and a half years, if you had toilet paper, if you had furniture, if you had a truck, you just raise your hand and somebody's willing to pay you 10,000 bucks for it. So that is definitely not the norm in our industry. And, and it's certainly an extreme with, you know, over $4 trillion being pumped into the economy. But right now, truckers are, are struggling. They're having a very difficult time finding shipments and depending on what part of the cycle we're in, brokers have a really difficult time finding trucks. So, so you're that matchmaker. <laughs> yeah, we, we aim just to bring everybody together and, and bring them into one place to easily and, and efficiently transact. Well, we'll come back and talk more about neutral in a minute. But uh, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights, just the, just the facts. <laughs> and you got a long, long, successful career for a young man. And and then we'll get we'll talk more about neutral. So, 
Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Yeah, so I grew up in Chicago suburbs. Ah, which one? There's there's a lot of them. <laughs> Naperville, Illinois. Oh yeah, that everyone knows it because the is that where there's there's a stop there right on the ninety four big exit there. There's a, a couple of large large hubs right around the area. Those Oasis. Yeah, I've drove driven through Chicago a million times, and there's always that Naperville. I think it's an Oasis there, but anyway, enough of my blather. Yeah, and, and it's it's uh, right next to Bolingbrook, which is also a, a huge kind of hub for trucking and warehousing. And you have uh, quite a bit of industrial areas right around the, the surrounding area. But grew up in, in Naperville and went to school at Western Illinois. And of course, at this time, had no clue that I would find myself in the world of trucking and didn't even know the world of trucking really existed. Oh my, how can you not know it exists? That trucking is like this, I'm a, I'm a Michigander, I'm in Detroit area. We all know automotive exists. If you're in Chicago, you have to know truck and trucking. Like I think 25% of all freight moves through Chicago. It's it's obvious now. I don't, I don't think it's I don't I don't think kids don't notice where their trucks driving by. <laughs> no, I was I was just looking to find enough money to pay my bar tab that weekend. I don't think I, would, I don't think I was overly concerned with with the world of logistics. So, so would you point. study at school? I studied criminal justice and social sociology and social statistics for psychology, and I really had a couple of mentors that were talking about my ability to read a room and socialize with individuals and how much weight that holds in the business world. And if you could understand human psychology and why people are doing certain things, you you really align yourself with their needs, which always helps in, in the world of sales and, and business. Sure. So I was really debating going into law at, at that particular time. And really, really fortunate I didn't. But that was the the career path at that particular time. Western Illinois is the number one criminal justice school in, in the state and thought that having that background would certainly help with becoming a criminal defense attorney somewhere down the road. And very, very fortunate I got talked out of that. <laughs> so so what was your first job out of school? Yeah, first job was at Echo Global Logistics. It was uh, end of 2007. I think the Monday after graduation, the headline was that Citibank was laying off 32,000 people. Oh, and yeah. very much had an oh shit moment. And here I am all fired up. I just got a degree. I'm getting out of school, trying to figure out what's next. And then then you start reading those types of headlines. And it's like, where are things going? What's going to happen next year in 2008? And just started lining up as many interviews as I, as I possibly could and walked into the, the uh, headquarters at at Echo Global and the amount of energy and the TVs and, you know, the, the typical stereotypical brokerage floor of people just, you know, banging out calls and swearing at each other and the loud, <laughs> energetic environment was, was incredibly attractive. And, and I'm, I'm a very competitive individual. So I saw that and it was like, I'm, I'm sold. So I, I went through the training course at Echo and for those that haven't, gone through that training course or, or, or don't know anybody that has gone through that training course at Echo, it's, it's top notch. And, and I think that that's where I really learned the ins and outs of, of the business and, or the industry and kind of got my foot in the door. So didn't have all that much success in my first couple of months there. They were going through their roadshow, launching their campaign to, to go public. And while I really, really valued the training and the onboarding there, I saw a 
quite a bumpy road to advance my career. So I got what I needed from Echo and, and parted ways probably about a year later and had a lot of mentors that were really kind of pushing me to do something, uh, go to a smaller company where it's a little bit more personal and I can start shadowing and learning the ins and outs from executive leadership or potentially the owner. So I went to some smaller family-owned businesses in the Chicagoland area, uh, wound up having a ton of success as an individual contributor, was pushed into leadership and started building out small teams, uh, sales teams, selling into to shippers and had my first opportunity to uh, join a larger company at that point. It was TSG, Transportation Solutions Group. We later rebranded as, as Redwood and just learned a ton from that leadership team. At the time, they were really, really pushing for EBITDA and, and educating the senior management team on, on multiples and valuations and how we're actually going to sell this business. And it was, I don't know, 27 at that particular time. So just an exposure to a world that I had had zero previous insight to, which which I really value. After after four years at Redwood, we had tremendous amounts of success growing top line revenue, both in terms of the freight brokerage as well as a couple of other business units. The digital freight brokerage world really started coming alive, and you saw the Uber Freights entering the space, and the convoys, and the transfixes, and the load smarts all raising Series A. So. I wound up moving out to New York City with my then girlfriend, now wife, and joined Transfix as in. That's a big move. Yeah, yeah, it was. Those were some tough conversations. I'm, I'm really, really grateful for my dad during that time. He gave me some, you know, I'm, I, I was telling you right before we started recording. It's my daughter's fourth birthday today, and being a father now. And thinking about where I was then trying to invite a girlfriend to move cross country with me to join a startup that didn't have any type of real momentum or validation at that particular point, probably wouldn't want the same for my daughter unless there was some sort of longer term commitment there. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful for, for my dad for kind of putting that into perspective. But we got engaged while... She's no dummy. <laughs> no, she's not. She's not. We got engaged while we were out in New York City, and we had a ton of success at, at Transfix and growing out that that sales organization. Well, that's another opportunity to watch a, another. I mean, you've been part of a few rocket ships. Uh, Redwood did real well. So did uh, Echoes done real well. And Transfix is a, another rocket ship. I've had Drew McElroy on. And I'm soon to have him on again. Fantastic guest. I love what they're doing over there. Yeah, there's there's no lack of energy from him. That's for sure. He's He's... A great leader, incredibly charismatic, and certainly learned a lot from him. Seeing seeing those two experiences side by side, going from the world of EBITDA, let's sell to private equity, to venture capital, let's hire fast, fire faster, we're going to throw more money at this, and we're going to grow at all costs. Like Seeing those two models or, or strategies side by side was incredibly valuable, and, and I'm, I'm very grateful. Yeah, and, and both worked really well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's I'm I'm grateful for those experiences. I don't think too many people get to see both sides of that equation and they are very different growth strategies. So I, I think that that has certainly helped kind of create a more well rounded perspective on, on my part. And and founding a business, I'm I'm incredibly grateful I got to see both of those. So what was next after Transfix? Yeah, so I left I left Transfix. I, I really enjoyed the the concept of trying to digitize the transaction. Uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's an obvious next step for the industry. 
given how many individual contributors there are on both sides of the marketplace, on the supply and, and demand side, it's it's ripe for disruption. Uh, there's there's a lot of autonomy that will enter the market in in the next you know couple of years, and I think it was natural progression. What what kind of clicked for me is a lot of a lot of these digital freight brokers are doing this in a very self serving way. And they're developing their own intellectual property to digitize the transaction, but it's really for themselves. It's not for the industry and for the the greater good for all brokers or all trucking companies. So I saw an opportunity, especially as more folks came on to TMSs. And I think that the, the world of technology will become much more widely adopted, especially through the, the volatility that I believe will be inevitable over the course of the next five years. And there's a tremendous opportunity to help those folks who aren't developing the tech for themselves to digitize the transaction on their behalf. And that's that's really the obvious progression for, for me and right. Neutral. So when and why did you start Neutral? What kind of, what did you see? What what was the aha moments of uh, that, oh, we're going to do this? Yeah, so this is kind of silly, but... We had, me, me and my wife found out we were pregnant. Uh, we had a very difficult pregnancy. I want to say that we were hospitalized for probably three to four weeks before oh boy, that's scary. my daughter was, was born. And, uh, and then my daughter was hospitalized for another six to eight weeks after she was born. And it was, it was just a really, really difficult period of time. For some stupid reason, uh, while we were in the hospital, I went to my wife and I was just, I just said, we're going to move a bunch of money to, to the side and put it, put it in our checking account from savings and we're going to take this risk and we're going to start a business. And I just got off the phone with. That seemed like a really good time for, to talk to Yeah. She's it. like, what are you doing having this conversation <laughs> with me right now? Like, do you think that this is appropriate? And I'm like, Nurse, my, a- my wife needs some more, um, that sedative, please. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to talk to her yeah, about it. I got to tell yeah. you, you mentioned when your daughter was sick, like your your wife having a difficult pregnancy and difficult birth and all that. I remember when my first daughter was born and it was an emergency C-section and it was, it was quick and, but scary in the moment. And I remember thinking after that, just kind of walking down the hall at hospital that I've always felt like you make your own luck to some extent. Now, granted, some people are born with more, some with less. But I was thinking, I, I kind of, to that point in my life, I was 30 years old, felt like I, the success I have is my own, which is probably not entirely true, but that's kind of how I thought. But I never thought about luck. But having healthy, being healthy myself, having a healthy wife and having a healthy child, you realize like, oh my God, that's just blind luck. That Some people have so many problems with, and I, and I was thinking, God, that's the luck I have in my life is I was born healthy and I've had healthy kids. <laughs> Knock on wood. That's that, that, that you can't earn. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. It's there. There was a lot of those types of thoughts at that particular time. You know, it's, it's, it's already stressful enough starting a business oh. or having a kid, let alone doing the same within four days of each other. So I, I incorporated from the hospital room uh, four days before she was born. And, and I think part of that was out of boredom. I'm not really good at sitting still or being stuck in any one particular place for an extended period of time. So, you know, if you're sitting in the hospital for a couple of weeks, why not just incorporate? And, you know, that, that was it. So you, had two ba- you had two babies, your n- neutral baby and your real baby. So 
let's get back to neutral itself. So the problem you initially wanted to solve was you saw all these carriers looking for freight and you said, I want to help them match up with, I want to help them match up with freight brokers. Now, do you, do you match them up also with shippers or just with freight brokers? No, we don't. We don't have any shippers on the platform. We certainly have that opportunity. And there are plenty of shippers that are, especially throughout COVID, have wanted easier access to capacity. And that's just a strategic decision that we have really just punted on for, for right now. I don't see a place in the foreseeable future where we incorporate shippers into the platform. I think there's enough issues and problems to solve with this current demographic of carriers and brokers and we'll see how all that plays out you know three five plus years from now so you're connecting so you're like a a digital platform that connects all these brokers with all these carriers now but you're not vetting any of the carriers on that list right that's correct that's correct so we're we're very similar to some of your more widely known load boards that are out there and we're just doing some of the things that we think they should have done and that really revolves around the integration and whether that's developing the right partnerships with some of these TMSs or going around the TMSs altogether. You know, there's, there's a lot of folks that have a TMS whose TMS can't support third party digital bookings today and may not be able to for five plus years. There are some TMSs that do not have the capacity or the sophistication to to implement third-party digital bookings until at least 2025. And, and these brokers aren't in a position to make a change. It's incredibly costly to change TMSs. It's incredibly costly to implement a new one. And so that brings me to another question. And we were talking before we hit record. You said to me something about 22,000 freight brokers, 22K, right? And I said, I just talked to J.D. Weisbrot over at J.D. J.W. Surety Bonds, and they sell surety bonds, I think, to 45% of the uh, freight brokers. And he said there's 21,000, which pretty darn close. I mean, we'll call that the same. I've been quoting that there's 17,000 freight brokers, and I think Don Salvucci Favier from... um, Green screens told me that, and I don't know where she got it, but I don't think it would surprise her to hear that we have more. But is that, that sound about right to you? We used to have seventeen thousand. Now we're up to twenty two thousand, twenty one thousand. Yeah, the the numbers I I regularly use are we had roughly nineteen thousand freight brokers around two thousand nineteen, and that has expanded to roughly twenty two thousand today. Which, which either way, whether there's gone from 17 to 21 or 19 to 22, the, the industry is becoming further fragmented. Yeah. And so, so let me ask a question. So you have, you're obviously connecting those guys. So they're all, for the most part, would you say those, the people you're, who are on your uh, system, are they used, they have TMS? 100% of our clients use a TMS. Okay. So the, do they need that to, to work with you? Yeah. Yeah, they do. So when you think about a digital booking, and some of some of the more legacy type load boards. When I talk about that difference, when I talk about the lack of innovation there, and, and I reference the integration, that's it. Like in, in order to complete a digital transaction and have somebody click a book it now button and check out like you would on Amazon or other any other e-commerce platform, 
you need a backend integration to be able to change that status and automatically send out a rate confirmation and complete the actual, complete the transaction. So, so that's what, in, in my opinion, has really lacked in this industry is, is the connectivity. And we're really, really good at integrations. And one of, one of our first hires, one of the first folks that we decided to onboard and, and partner with was my co-founder and, and CTO. And his background was, was Goldman Sachs. And he was uh, one of the heads of application development for Goldman Sachs. And he is incredibly familiar with the importance of system connectivity and security and speed of, of data transfers. So it took us a really long time to find him in particular or find somebody that was very familiar with this problem. But it is a problem in, in transportation. It still is a problem. And we think we're one of the first to really attack it. Now, we, while we're really good at integrations, we don't want to be an integration company. We're happy to go ahead and, and provide some of these integrations to our customers just to develop that relationship and get really sticky with those folks. But where a sweet spot really is, is bringing liquidity from both sides of the market into right. control and allowing them to transact. So I'm just curious, how many TMS different type of transportation management systems have you already integrated with? I have no idea at this point. It has to be at least 15. Right. And a friend of mine said, when I mentioned how many brokers there were, he said, that's crazy because there's, cause there's that many transportation management systems now. But I do think we're seeing, you know, um, certain systems are newer and are built, built for our modern, our, our modern business and others are. And, and by the way, I say this all the time on my podcast, 30 years ago, if you had a transportation management system, I don't know even when the first one would have come about, but it would have been because you had an enormous amount of freight. So what happens is the guys who are, let's just say, th think of the Fortune 500 guys who would have invested in that. Then it becomes kind of that legacy system. And somebody says, hey, let's, let's upgrade you to something newer. And you say, we have millions of transactions in here. And we've spent millions on integrations over the years. So I don't care if you have a fancy new system that we can say it's in a new code, in the new code we're kind of, I won't say stuck, but reluctant to move. And the guys from JBF Consulting were on my podcast and they talked about as we had some consolidation in the transportation management systems, those companies, as they started to um, consolidate, some of these old company, I'm saying old companies, some of these old legacy systems that were on-premise, <laughs> on-premises, they were said, hey, we can't support that anymore. We need to move you to the cloud. And again, these companies were like, we have millions and millions of dollars invested in this and we know how it works. And the challenge they run into is when was the last time they bought a TMS? <laughs> 30 years ago. And, and it's a humongous decision. That's why JBF Consulting's around is because they said, we'll help you pick because we do that every day. But it's it, this is one of the challenges that we have is that as we have the newer systems, and I don't have the guys on Turbo all the time. They're on my podcast, the guys from Emerge. These companies have newer systems. The integrations, I think for those are like, boom. <laughs> and for some of the older ones, I'm sure they're upgrading. But the challenges are just as I described is millions of transactions, millions of dollars worth of integrations and not easy to make the move yeah i you know a lot of these tmss are partners of ours so i'll, I'll proceed with caution but you, you know these these 
folks charge a lot of money to migrate off of their platforms. They charge a lot of money for upgrades, upgrades that most other newer TMSs are just free and part of their system. So it's something that you know doesn't get enough attention, I think, in the space. But there's while we have touched on broker and carrier fragmentation in this conversation, we are approaching application and software fragmentation in this industry. And there are so many new players, so many different systems, so many different types of technologies and verticals coming in that we're getting pretty wide with, with what's available. And if, if you are the, for lack of a better term, if, if you are the control tower, of one of these freight brokers or or these shippers, and and you are the TMS, you have a lot of dev work to do to keep up with with the evolution in, in this industry, whether it's tracking or factoring or digital matching or you know all of these or all of these new new emerging categories. Like it's they have a they have a very difficult job, and I think it's just going to lead to more of a need for system connectivity, especially over the course of the next 10 years. So let's, let me ask a question. So when a, let's just say I've got a a freight broker, I'm a freight broker. I'm using something, uh, a relatively new TMS, like a, a, well, I know turbo well. So how long does it take me to integrate with a neutral? If we already have an integration with that TMS provider, it could be a couple of days. If it's a, if it's a net new integration and something we haven't scoped or, or dealt with, which at this point is, is pretty rare, more than likely it's going to be proprietary at that point. But for, for those systems, we're looking at two to three weeks to integrate and another roughly two to, two to three weeks to operationally onboard. So go live is 40, 45 days or so. For, for a complete net new integration. So I could, if but if it's not a net new, if you've already done an integration on it, it's pretty quick. I'm, I'm, I'm doing business within a, what'd you say, a week? Yeah, it's it's one of our core metrics. What is the time to, to onboard a, a new customer? And when we first started four years ago, or when we first launched our first APIs, which was two and a half years ago, we were over 90 days. and And that was not necessarily our fault. It was multiple parties where where friction existed, and that was at the freight brokerage because they didn't know really what they were doing with digital bookings yet. It was with the TMS because they were just following the directions from their customers and hadn't really gotten there yet. Yep. And then we were still trying to make sure our APIs worked worked properly. So there was three different parties involved. A little in learning this curve for everybody. Concept. Right, right. So we have effectively cut that in half from 90 days to 45 days for a net new integration. And, and we think in the next six to 12 months, we could definitely be at, at under a month. Very nice. So when you switch over to the carrier side, let's just say I have uh, I have some trucks, I have five or six trucks. I, what, how do I, how do I integrate with neutral? You don't have to. For for the carrier side, for, for trucking companies, you know, it's it's our opinion that there are a lot potentially over twelve to fifteen different personas as as trucking companies. And that could be Bob the owner operator, it could be Steve the load planner, the dispatcher, the fleet manager. There's there's a lot of different titles and job descriptions that go into sourcing and finding shipments. And then within each one of those different titles, there are plenty of different ways that those folks prefer to transact. Some love the digital booking experience. 
Some love going into neutral and seeing 75 customers in one place. Some don't care about the difference of 25 or 50 bucks because they have to move their asset back to Chicago or St. Louis for an Anheuser-Busch pickup tomorrow. So they're much less concerned about the revenue and more about the positioning of their, their fleet and their assets. Others are live off of some of these load boards and try to get four or five bucks a mile wherever they possibly can. And they're just price gouging and that's their preference. So there, there's a wide variety of different approaches to sourcing shipments. And for us, we just have to be really, really flexible. So it can mean logging into the neutral user interface. It can mean going to your factoring provider and finding neutral loads within your factoring provider's application. It could be, it could mean integrating neutral into your TMS. So if you want to search shipments within your system of record, go ahead and do that. And we'll just populate all of the results and you can digitally book it now from the system that you operate out every day. So if I'm a small carrier, I might not have any systems that I'm using. I just want to just go in. I want to get, there's a neutral interface that I can look at and you say, there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of loads that I could say, I want that one. So let's just say I see that one from Detroit to Chicago. That's perfect for me. I want to do this one. What do I need? Do I just click a button that says, uh, well, tell me what that button says. Register. You, you, you register, you sign up. Uh, that process is under 20 seconds. You are automatically associated to all of your clients that are in neutral. And uh, you have a distinct book of business, you know, as a trucking company of, of call it four trucks. And uh, you probably have a hundred different brokers that you've worked with over the past couple of years. So the second that you log into neutral for the first time, again, under 20 second registration process, you instantly see all of the brokers that you're connected with and that you can call for. Uh, when you do that search, then yeah, it's it's 100% free to register. It's 100% free for a trucking company to come into neutral and book a shipment. If you are not connected to to a freight broker that has that perfect Chicago to uh, or Detroit to Chicago load, then you can't book their load. But there's a get set up link where you could go ahead and click that link and then get set up with that particular broker. So that enables you to to be able to transact on that load or or loads in the future. So we try to make it as painless and frictionless for a trucking company to go in and have a consolidated view rather than going tab to tab to tab, call to call to call, or email to email to email. So in that transaction, I say, yep, I'm going to take that one that goes through the system, through the transportation management system, the uh, the broker, and they check me out. We we did something in the past. They check me out. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm good to go. And we say, yes, we're going to move all the tracking, tracing, all that other stuff is through their transportation management system is normal. Payments are through them, not through you guys, right? Yeah, that's that's spot on. We, we charge for the connectivity, the transaction, and helping each other find each other. After, after that's completed, our job is over. Now, that being said, <clears throat> we do have different functions within the platform where we can make transmitting data like tracking data or payment data more accessible to both parties and just help the, like I said, the, the transferring of data. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily providing payment services. That doesn't mean that we're providing tracking services, but, but if we can consolidate that information and update our clients TMS with all of those details, we save them a lot of calls. We save them a lot of efforts in trying to figure out where that, that carrier is. Or... So the people who pay, is it the broker or is it the carrier that they both pay to be use the system? Yeah, today the the broker pays us a flat transactional dollar amount. Not it's, too shabby. No not too shabby. Fee. 
yeah, it's it's a pay to play. I, I know this is the ch- one of the challenges I think with anybody who's kind of in the middle like this is there's the chance that they go, oh, thanks for introducing me, neutral. Now I will work directly with that carrier, and the next time we do business, you're not part of it. I mean, I think that's just one of the realities of your kind of business, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of different ways that we get around that. Most of our clients are happy paying for for high quality carrier leads. And especially if it's on a recurring contractual basis, a lot of our clients are okay with with giving us our transaction fee for call up the first year. Because that those transaction fees for the first year are still much cheaper than what it would have cost that broker to source a truck who's willing to do three loads a week or 150 of them a year. So so there's still a lot of value add in being able to help these folks source on a consistent basis. But we also see every single transaction that they're doing. So if a trucking company comes into neutral and finds that perfect Detroit to Chicago load and then picks up the phone and circumvents neutral, our clients are still very much okay with paying us for that transaction, even though it resulted in a phone call. That carrier called in, knew exactly what load they wanted, knew what the target rate was, and got it booked, they're still very much okay with paying us for that inbound lead. Well, I think most people want to be fair. So not everybody, but I think most people want to be fair. And I would think also, you certainly, well, once you see the opportunity here where you say, hey, I've connected with a whole bunch of new capacity that I didn't have before, this is somebody I want to be my friend, <laughs> right? I want new, I want the guys at Neutral to like me. And I would also think that as a carrier, you don't need just one lane all the time. You need different lanes. So things change. So I think there would also like if, if they're, you're always going to have that those trucking companies saying this is I love the interface. I love that they can always get me back calls. I love that they can fill in the gaps, whatever they're doing. And you said this is more transactional business, which let's face it, there's plenty of that. I, I joke about it this way, but it's kind of the truth. It's almost like um, ladies night at a a bar. When you get all the carriers there, you're going to find all of the uh, all of the brokers are going to show up, even if they have to pay ten dollars to get in. Hundred <laughs> percent. It's it's a marketplace. You know, when when you have liquidity on one side, you're you're more prone to to lure in the other side, and it's a very tricky tricky problem. You know, it's it's the same thing with the nightclub. How what what do you start with? The chicken or the egg? Do you start with the the ladies' night situation? How do you how do you bring in the women to attract both both demographics? And that's a really, really hard problem to solve. And you know, we it's it's something we talk about very, very regularly is we can't get carriers without shipments and we can't get more shipments without carriers. So we are we are very much building two businesses at the same time and trying to make sure that we scale them in parallel without one getting really right. lopsided. Well, it always kind of comes back to that's that's the bit that's the nature of our business. That carrier looks to neutral to say, "Get me good business, get me good loads," and the the carriers looking to I mean the brokers looking to you and say, "Hey, connect us with great carriers." And even though you're not vetting them, they, most most carriers on your system, I'm sure, wouldn't. They would know that they're not going to get business if they're not going to clear the uh, the vetting that the broker does. Yeah, and and I think the the important piece around the the vetting is is this is such a critical aspect of our industry. You know, it it can it can quite literally put a broker out of business if they don't do their job properly. And and I always use you know a similar saying like there's 
there's no fender benders in trucking. These, these accidents, these incidents at 60, 70 miles an hour at 50, 80,000 pounds don't result in little fender benders. And there's a tremendous amount of liability and, and you better know who you're transacting with and the reputation of those individuals. And while, while we would be putting ourselves and over, overextending ourselves to sit there and say that we're solving that, that would be a tremendous amount of liability for us. We do have different integrations and partners that help make that easier. And we do want to make sure that folks are able to do some quick research on a carrier, get their safety scores, get their, get their trustworthy score and make sure that people are transacting with legitimate folks. And it's an ancillary offering in, in our platform. It's something we provide for free, but it's, it's purely a safeguard, not necessarily what we would consider a product. Right, right. Well, I, I, and these things evolve. Your company's four years old. Who knows what you'll be doing 10 years from now, right? It's, um, you'll change or, as the industry or one year from now. Yes. Yeah. You'll change as the industry changes. So yeah, I love this. And again, it's just, there's to, to some extent, there's nothing new under the sun, you know, in, in this business is that we all, brokers are looking for good capacity and, and carriers are looking for good, good loads. It's, and connecting those though, has always traditionally been done, you know, manually. And that's just, when you talk about what you're doing in the, tens of thousands of transactions you look and go god this is so big well imagine you know putting your hat on 10 years ago and saying yeah there's no system to do it or 15 years ago with no system to do it and people did it somewhat confidently there was that tribal knowledge and the relationships and it worked but i think the technology is where we're all heading i mean let's face it this is and by the way i did i want to ask you you're going to if you don't already have a ton of data, you're going to have more data. And are you going to ever end up doing anything with that data? Like here's here's the average rates for this lane or selling data uh, data products separately from what you're doing? Yeah, so we're we're in the infancy stages of doing some beta testing with some of the data that we already have. To your point, we have we have an enormous database at this point. And, and an incredibly valuable, what I believe to be a, an incredibly valuable database. And we need to figure, we need to figure out how exactly to, to aggregate, anonymize and provide limited data sets to our clients and to our users to help them quickly, easily find each other and potentially provide some market insights like pricing. I'm not really interested in being in the business of being a pricing company. Oh, right. It's a very tricky problem to solve. You mentioned Don at green screens earlier. I would be happy to leave that problem up to the green screens <laughs> of the world to, to try to solve. That's It's a very complex problem, especially when you get into rate predictability and, and forecasting. So while we have the data, we think that there's a lot of people that we could enable, like the green screens of the world, uh, to see who's transacting for what today. But Again, we're, we're in the infancy stages, but that will certainly become a major product and revenue driver for neutral in, in the years to come. Excellent. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about the growth. You've been around for four years. You've grown quickly. You got some VC money. Tell a little, talk a little bit about some of the lessons you've learned along the way growing this business. The lessons I've learned. I think the, the biggest one is usually those, usually those are from things that went really wrong. <laughs> right. 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 Which, <laughs> which coincidentally is top of mind right now. 
We we just announced yesterday a recent round of funding that was five point one million. That brings us up to roughly eight and a half million. Wow! In total, congratulations so far. Thank you, thank you. I saw it on LinkedIn. Thank you. It's certainly not an easy market to to fundraise in at the moment, and I have no idea what twenty twenty three is going to be in, in store for the venture world, but. We know the bar will be raised. The standard will be higher to raise capital. It may be the same dollar amounts and check sizes. It may be the same valuations, but in order to reach those, it will be a lot, a lot stricter and, and a tighter market. So when you say it's a lot stricter and a lot tighter market, so for people who are not, the vast majority of people are never going to, I think 99% of businesses don't get venture capital. So for all of us who do not get venture capital, when you say stricter, was that what does that mean? You're going to make more money sooner, or you're giving up more equity? What does all that mean? Potentially both. I, I think, you know, for for the last roughly year, year and a half, we saw insane check sizes at insane valuations on very little to potentially no revenue at all. We know of companies that raise fifteen, twenty, twenty five million dollars with with zero dollars in in revenue. So. I don't expect that to be the norm in 2023. I think for that same $20 million check, you are going to have to be much, much further along than the ideation phase. So I I think that things will get much tighter. Investors have more money. They're sitting on more money than than ever before. They are still uh, mandated to deploy a lot of that money. So I don't expect the fundraising environment to come crashing down or come to a halt or anything like that. I do expect dollars to be deployed, but the bar to be much, much higher than just an idea. And and they're going to want high quality companies that have been able to show tremendous growth, a lot of traction, well beyond the proof of concept or MVP phase. And it's it's going to be a it's going to be a more difficult environment to to raise in than it has been for the last year and a half. It's it's a it's a funny thing sometimes I hear People talk about venture capital, and again, being not not by any means an expert, I do remember when I worked at a venture capital backed company, and there was only twelve of us, and we were growing very rapidly. More as a consulting company, we later learned, uh, not as a not as a software company. We are, but we were founded by a, a one of the largest, or funded by one of the largest VCs, and. What was interesting is I remember all the chatter was, we're going to do another round. We're going to do another round. We're going to do another round. And one of the uh, guys who had brought me into the company had worked at like 10 companies like this. And he had had successful exits over. The reason I worked with him is because he lived down the street from me and built this mansion. And I was like, you know, there's all good sized houses here, but his is the biggest. He's, he's, uh, he knows what he's doing. But I remember, um, him saying, we don't want another round. We want to grow with our cash. And he said, do you want to be an owner or do you want to be an employee here? And he says, we're all owners, but like you want to give up more. And this is what another round means is giving up more. And so I think this is sometimes missed, but I think there's another thing that won't mention names, but I heard somebody say this of a venture backed company that the valuation was so high so somebody came in saying, I'll give you a $10 million and this brings the valuation to blank and the company's not worth that. That A year later, it's not worth it. Five years later, it's not worth that. There's no time where you can say there's going to be an exit. And I think all those guys who are investing, they expect at some point there's going to be revenue or an, or an exit. 
Yep. And, and it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky being a founder and being put in those situations. And you can, you can read the books. You can listen to, you know, the, the typical stories out there around delusion versus growth. And do you, do you use this money to grow at all costs? And if you do grow, is it quality growth or is it just top line growth with negative margins? And is there, is there profitability anywhere in sight? Can you as a business ever get there? And those are all really tricky levers that every founder has the ability to, to push and pull. And I think that there has been this, this stigma with, with founders that it's celebrated. Raising venture capital is celebrated. And we know of, we know of folks throwing fundraising parties in San Francisco. And to us, at least at neutral, we, uh, we take a pretty conservative approach to how we spend money, but, but also we know that the end goal has to be profitability. Yeah. That's, it is an interesting thing because to your point, if you get, if you, if you get very aggressive about it, and you say, well, look how much money we've raised. Well, that's great. It values the company, but at some point, the company is going to be valued by traditional metrics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's there's a couple of different ways of valuing the company. And I think, unfortunately, some founders don't understand how valuations necessarily work. And what they see is what a an investor is valuing them at at a future point in time. Not what they're worth today, but the investor is betting on the upside. It's just like when you buy a stock, you're not betting that Amazon is just going to remain at X amount of dollars per share. You're betting that they're going to grow, which is why you're buying. So, so I think a lot of people get caught up with that celebration of, I just got a hundred million dollar valuation. I'm rich. And that couldn't be farther from the truth, but you know, it's, it's our job just to stay heads down and execute and build a, build a quality business. Well, I like your approach to it. So, Ed, I'm gonna we're gonna wrap this bad boy up. So I'm gonna ask you, ask and answer in any order you want. What's next for you? What's next for Neutral, your company spelled N-E-W-T-R-U-L? And what's next for this industry? And when I say the industry, I guess what I mean is I, I don't know what you what you put yourself in as a load board or next generation load board or matchmaker, whatever you guys are. Match.com for freight brokers, <laughs> whatever you want to yeah, Tinder. call it. <laughs> no, not Tinder. We go with freight. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I, I think for, <laughs> I think for, for the industry, I'll, I'll start there and kind of work backwards. The, the industry is going to see tremendous growth in the next five to 10 years. And regardless of what the freight markets do, we're going to see a lot of change and there's a lot of money that has been poured into this space. There's a lot of more money that will continue being poured into space, into the space. There are a lot of problems. There's a lot of opportunity and there are a lot of folks that are willing to take the gamble and, and try to solve some of these problems right now, more so than, than ever before. So I think the quality of entrepreneur, I think the quality of, of tech that is coming to light in the market will really, really drive change. Uh, one of, one of the examples of that is, is autonomous vehicles. And I think like most new technologies, everybody's very, very pessimistic at first. And then they start seeing, you know, a, a truck go from California to Arizona and they're like, holy cow, like 
you know, but it's only highway miles, whatever. And they're going to undermine that. And now we're starting to see some city miles. We're starting to see more states adopt that highway mentality. And in the next five or 10 years, that's going to be very real. So I, I think that that has the ability to, to really disrupt a couple of different models out there. Do the OEMs, do the truck manufacturers start becoming carriers? If they're developing these trucks, <laughs> well, yeah, can, can they just start moving freight? And, and our thesis, you know, at, at neutral and what's next, next for neutral is does neutral have the ability to be the brains of those trucks and potentially help them find shipments and, and help them maximize revenue? Whereas the trucks and the truck manufacturers need to focus on building an autonomous vehicle that could stay in between the lines and, and, uh, just get from point A to point B. How do they find and source the best shipment for, for their truck, depending on where they're at? And I think we have a huge opportunity to partner with those types of forward thinking OEMs that, that help actually put revenue on those trucks. And, and in terms of me and neutral status quo, we're, no, we're heads the down executing and putting this, this money to work and, making sure that we're investing heavily in product-led growth and that we're building the right things for the industry to get incredibly sticky with our users and build solutions that, that wind up, you know, moving the needle for both sides of the marketplace. Yeah, that's excellent. And, and I love what you brought up the autonomous vehicles because it is closer than we think. I, I think I, one of the things I was just talking to my nephew, who's very interested in autonomous, and I told him, he's 17, I told him, You'll tell your grandkids how when you got your license, you used to drive around in a car. And I said, your grandchildren will say, what do you mean? What if you what if you screwed up? What if you were uh, not paying attention? He said, oh, yeah, that happened all the time. 50,000 people a year, unfortunately, died because we didn't know what we were doing. We'll get to that place. But one of the challenges that I said this before on my podcast is there's unfortunately an accident every single day and probably fatalities every single day of trucks with trucks there's a lot of them and most of those are caused by passenger cars it's not front page news it's horrible for the families horrible for the companies everyone involved it's it's sad if there's an autonomous vehicle that's in one of those kind of crashes it's front page news so we're gonna have to get to a point where we're not oh we're as good as the best driver that might (laughs) might be the standard and that's so unfortunate for the technology but it's just kind of the nature of it it's probably the same for robots, right? If you say, hey, I'd love to have a robot made, only 1% ever go haywire and hit you, right? <laughs> so we're, we're going to, but we're going to get there. I mean, we're no doubt, we're, we're already there. I, I talked to guys from Kodiak in the podcast. They're going between Dallas and Houston. Oh, it's about 250 miles on a regular basis with no accidents. Now, there is a driver in that car, but it's the autonomous controls are, are driving it. Yeah, the, the exceptions are always going to be the most costliest. And the goal of any of those companies, whether it's a human driver or a robot uh, or software, it's how do you minimize the exceptions and keep liability as low or if not zero as, as you can. And that's that's the name of the game. And it will depend on when it's all rolled out. And, you know, you think about technology, it's, it's really slow, like a new innovation. It's really slow till it's goes really fast and right now you watch tv you'll see a car that says hey you don't own a parallel park that's okay our car will parallel park itself well that's that's obviously autonomous you put your cruise control on somewhat autonomous 
We have braking systems that are better than the humans. That's autonomous. So it's already creeping in, right? Yeah. And it, it, I've never been in a car that stopped itself because of a, a hazard, but I know that that technology is out there. So I look forward to sitting in the back. I look forward to sitting in the back seat playing with my laptop rather than the <laughs> driving. Yeah, I, I have. And, and it's, it's a pretty fascinating experience. And we have a car that's semi autonomous and it, it has eye recognition on it. So if your eyes start going all over the place and you're no longer looking at the road, it starts beeping at you to, to tell you to start paying attention. And is that your car? Yeah, it is. Very and it's, nice. It's, it's crazy. Now, my wife hates it. I can't use it when she's in the car, but you know, it's, it's something it's to your point. It's happening. It's, it's here, it's happening, and it's just a matter of time, especially when we look at the margin compression in trucking, where it will, it will, it's inevitable at this point. So one last time, who's the sweet spot for neutral? Yeah, so we, we target mid-market trucking companies and mid-market brokers. We think most of the large trucking companies and the large brokers will be able to integrate with each other and, and digitally transact. We think most of the small folks aren't really early adopters and will be laggards. And the mid-market is where a lot of pain will be felt on both sides of the equation throughout some of these inevitable cycles over the course of the next three to five years. And those are the folks that don't have the sophistication to build their own technology. They require and need automation to help with their margins and to help sustain a profitable business. And that's where we've seen our value proposition at its greatest. Excellent. Excellent. So, Ed, what, what conferences will we see neutral at this year? Yeah, I'll be heading to Freight Waves uh, shortly after this call. And Yes, it's F3 down in Chattanooga. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then there's, there's a couple of different TMS user conferences. We always participate in the TIA events, the Freight Waves events, and, and I think your, your typical carrier and Freight brokerage events, the SCMP, TIA, uh, you know, the, the usual suspects. Very nice. Very nice. Are you going to be at Manifest in January? It will be you. Yes, I will be there. I can't pass a trip to Vegas. I've heard great things about it. <laughs> well, as you know, uh, Michigan's no warmer than Chicago come uh, January. So it will be a nice break to get to Manifest. I've heard nothing but great things about it. So look forward to seeing you there. Yep. Thanks, Joe. Ed, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time and going way over our time. <laughs> Thanks for being right. I appreciate it. We're going to do it more often. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.